I'm Joe Leo with your play-by-play network sportsman. Nike is reportedly ending their relationship with Kyrie Irving, and it's a confusing one for me. On one hand, I completely understand Nike executives not liking that one of the faces of their company being in the news for one reason or another every day. It can get tiring, and it can affect the bottom line in terms of the stock market and some consumers' opinions due to Irving's vaccination status. On the other hand, I don't understand why Nike wouldn't want one of the most recognizable faces and influential people in the NBA. Irving's idol, Kobe Bryant, went through a similar situation with Adidas and Nike when Bryant was involved in the rape trial in 2004. Back to Irving, though, it's truly troubling for me because I see both sides of the argument. Stepping out of my fandom for Irving for a second, he's an enigma as a human being. He has a mindset of an athlete that's either a golfer or a tennis player, but he's ridiculously talented when he plays on the floor. He is a champion and is responsible for the biggest shot in Cavalier history, but also he has views I personally don't agree with, and he has shown actions that don't line up with what he says about team dynamics. So maybe this is why Nike has decided to part ways with Irving, because enough people in the shoe giant's company think the way I do. They acknowledge the greatness and importance of Kyrie Irving, but they truly can't stand with him because nobody truly knows what he stands for. And even if you ask Irving that question, you leave the conversation with more questions than you did going into it. For the Play-By-Play Network, I'm Joe Leo. You're listening to the Grind Hours Podcast. At the wall! See ya! See ya! Recording this at 9.53 on Thursday, May 15th. Hello and welcome to the Grind Hours Podcast. And I've got one of the longtime guests and one of the best guests on this show. Uh, He's the host of the 7 Minute Stories Podcast, Aaron Califato. And Aaron, we were talking for, I think it seemed like 20 minutes before we got on, just about, uh, you know, the Midwest and, and, and me getting a tone to it. I'm still in Chicago. And the main reason why I, ha- I want you on this show today is uh, we collaborated on a seven-minute story together. Uh, I, I believe we recorded it in October of 2021, maybe September of 2021. It was definitely later in 2021. Um, it came out three weeks ago, I want to say. Yeah, April. Yep. Yeah, so it was end of April. And I totally forgot. Like, I forgot like 80% of what I told you. So <laughs> listening to it back was like listening to it for the first time. And there is some stuff that I do want to get into. But for you, we talked for 40 minutes or so for that that interview that we did. What was the hardest part of taking that from 40 minutes to, to, to seven. It, that's always the hardest part about doing this special, like having a special guest, because mm-hmm. as you know, from listening, you know, when I, the, the majority of the, the episodes that I do are literally extemporaneous stories. And so I, I have an idea. I kind of, I, I don't write any of my stories. So I have an idea. I, 
put together the narrative in my, in my head, as far as where it starts, what happens and then where it goes. And then I do a few takes and I record and tell stories that way. And so that's the, I think that's the, the unique part of the storytelling um, is that it feels in the moment because it is, I mean, I'm thinking about it prior to, but when you're listening, you're on that journey with me. So with these type of stories, when I have a guest and I'm recording an interview or a conversation, as you know, it you wear a different skill set, or I should say, you wear a different hat that represents a different uh, skill set. Which is then you become a content editor, and you're kind of putting together how the story should go, or at least try to fit it into that seven minutes. So yeah, that always is really tough, man. Um, the hardest part is one, there was a lot of great stuff in our conversation. So right. the, the, I think if it was just a standalone conversation, I was doing a traditional podcast without a time parameter, you know, that's the challenge. It's, it's, you know, it's seven minute stories. So with these type of things, uh, I only do a few guest episodes a year because it's so hard, right. uh, but so I, because it's the fact it's like, man, I got to pull seven minutes and make that seven minutes at least make sense and try to pull a narrative out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it was actually, you know, it was, it, I actually was just holding off on it for a while because I didn't know when to release it. I wanted to release it as the playoffs started going um, just to kind of get that people are in that space of watching, you know, uh, basketball, but also I was really trying to, pull the best segments and the, and find the story arc, um, over time. And I, I had a hard time finding it, not because of what you said, but the direction I wanted to take it. And I think what I ended up doing was finding that the story ended up being sort of a real collaboration between you and I, because it wasn't just your story. It was actually part of the stories was my interpretation of what I wanted your story to be. Yeah. And that's where I was like, Oh, that's the hook there. The hook is you had this great story and really, you know, as people will listen, you told it the way it is. And I think you were more true to that, even if that moment wasn't like romantic in the sense of how I wanted to end it. And so that's kind of the key there is like, you know, as a storyteller, sometimes you always want to not necessarily put it into a box, but you want to, you want to wrap it up and you want to create some sort of magic with it. It is a magical story, but I think that was kind of the interesting part about our, at least the way it shaped up in the seven minutes is that it was a push and pull between this really poignant thing that happened to you. And then also, you know, not intentionally, but bringing myself into it as someone who's going, well, let me try this and let me try to push it this way. And I think you were, as I said, it, you know, at the end, uh, you, you know, you, you kind of pushed back and, and I think from a journalistic perspective, uh, and I think that's, you know, from as a sports journalist, if that's kind of what you're diving into, I think you have a great head on your shoulders because you understood the moment, but at the same time realized that you didn't need to embellish it. I think that's the difference between storytelling and journalism, right? It's like a, storytelling is truth embellished. And, you know, journalism is like, no, this is kind of what happened. These right. are the facts. But it still was a great moment. And I think that's kind of what brought the unique part to the end. So once I had that, that made it a little bit easier, but the hardest part was just finding the narrative and breaking down, you know, 40 minutes of a talk into seven minutes. But really the, the conversation is the, just like this one, it's just an extension of our phone calls, Yeah, which are great. You know, we talk all the time. So I don't feel it's just like, we talk about so much stuff. It's almost like, you know, at some point in the future, we should think about doing like a little limited series or something where we just literally just go on and talk about sports or pop culture. Cause I think that in itself, I, I wouldn't want to take those down to seven minutes, you know? Yeah. So that was just some so of the that, that'd be impossible. You, yeah, you, it might be that might be borderline impossible. <laughs> if, taking a, an hour and a half, two hour conversation and just boiling it down. That, that'd be I mean, 
one hell of an edit. It might take you a year to, to do that. But one interesting thing is the point that, you're, that you made about where you were leading into the conversation and even editing the conversation. And the point that you didn't tell me, that you just waited for the episode to come out to tell me was, I think, the biggest lesson for me. Because during the conversation, it wasn't like you were trying to do that. At least that's the, the tone that I took from that conversation is you weren't trying to lead me in any sort of way, which if you're telling some, it, some stories, that's what you have to do. You have to lead the story to the direction that you want to go. Mm. You weren't doing that. I think that moment happened only because you edited it down and you waited so long to do that, to pick the right time and to tell the, the story the, the, the right way. And I think you did tell the story the right way. And that was, that was the, the lesson for me is that you told the story the right way and you, you, and you made it your own. Like, yes, it's my story. Yes, it's, uh, it's a conversation you had with me and, and we, uh, we, we collaborated on it. But that's my biggest lesson. What do you think? And this could be from, you know, people that you've heard from that, that you know, comment on, uh, on the show or mm -hmm. just yourself. What do you think the biggest lesson was for you? Well, I think it, it, the biggest lesson for me is always just a, an articulation that there are clear difference, clear different skill sets when it comes to being a storyteller. So like for me, I, I still think my strength is just pure storytelling. I think that's where my wheelhouse is. It's not that I'm not strong in the other sense because, you know, with my work, I mean, it, as, a, as a podcast consultant and producer, I'm constantly doing that. I'm constantly taking interviews and finding the story element and cutting them together and, and creating um, a, a product, an audio product for, for clients. But with, with this, I think the key thing was just, um, it just articulates the difference, right? Between when someone else shares something with you and how you treat it mm -hmm. to then how you treat your own story. And I think there's just a shift that happens there where it, for me, it's just a lot easier when I'm, it's not just easier. It's just, it's easier when you're telling your own story. And for right. some people, they would say that's not, but for me, I have a, I have a pretty clear sense of what I want to tell, how I want to tell it. And then I try to, you know, tell it earnestly, I try to tell it um, in an entertaining way. And then I also try to in implicate myself in the stories because that's the key thing. So I think in the, the lesson here was I found a way to still implicate and hold myself accountable, not necessarily in this, in your episode as the prime performer, mm -hmm. but as a collaborator and as a storyteller, when it comes to content edits, I kind of found that like, Hey, I'm actually trying here to, 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 I don't want to say manipulate this, but I, I thought it was important to call myself out in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and, and that's where to me, that's interesting is instead of trying to package it at something, because sometimes even when you're a good storyteller, you still fall back to tendencies to want to have the, the storybook ending. And I think the best stories sometimes don't have the storybook ending. They, right. they have a more nuanced ending. And I think what our conversation presented to me was, that we that you had a really great story about what it is to meet your sports idol when it came to basketball. Right. I always am fascinated with that theme of like, what do you do when you have that opportunity? And um, and and so I think 
we were able to take that on its surface and then add another layer to it. And so that was the lesson is just always find a way to be honest with yourself and always be, sometimes you have to, sometimes it's hard. You have to be vulnerable and say like, Hey, I actually found myself trying to make this into something like more when in reality, as you said, the way you met Vince Carter and how you interacted with him is good enough. In fact, it, it, the moment was the moment. And I think that was the lesson at the end of it was that sometimes you have people that can appreciate the moment for what it is, and then just kind of sit in that moment. And then you have people who have a moment and they kind of appreciate it, but then they wish it was more. And I found myself just, just in life, man, I'm, you know, always working on myself where I do appreciate everything in my life, but sometimes I find myself kind of looking back at situations and going, Oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done this as opposed to just, Hey, look, it is what it is and appreciate it for what it is. Sometimes I try to, I find myself trying to squeeze the life out of those moments or try to go back in time. And I think that leads to a little bit of, you know, neuroses and suffering. And uh, I, anyways, so I, I know I'm going on a tangent here, but my point uh, is, I, I, I think it was that that's a key lesson for me. Really quick story. Um, and it's kind of along that same line of taking the moment and just living in it and using it for what it was and having that. My brother's favorite basketball player of all time is Steve Nash. We rode mm. in an elevator a couple of months ago in an elevator with Steve Nash. And my brother, the entire time was freaking out. He was like, oh my God. I, and my mom was like, cause I was with my mom, my brother and my aunt. I'm not going to disclose the, the location. I'm giving Steve Nash that much of a private uh, uh, of privacy, but we were riding down the elevator and my, the entire time my mom's like, you should say hi to him. You should say hi to him. And that was, the, I was like, just let it be, let it like, you don't want to bother this guy in an elevator. Cause how cliche and is that story? Oh, I wrote an, ele- an elevator. The number one thing I've learned from just hearing quote unquote celebrities ride in elevators, they don't want to be talked to. That's the number one place they don't want to have an interaction is, right. is in a random elevator. So I was just like, just you have the moment of, hey, who's the, if you're at a cocktail party, who's the, most famous person you've rode in an elevator with, you can say it's Steve Nash. Mm-hmm. And like, I'll say it's Steve Nash because I was in that elevator and I realized that it was cool, but I didn't want to bother him. If it was in a different setting, sure, go up and say hi and say, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. You're my favorite basketball player of all time. Can I have a picture or whatever? But don't do it before you get in the elevator or after you get in the elevator, because that, that, that interaction is just, it's organic, but it can be pushed. If you know what I mean? You're right. The best moments, I'll just say this, the best moments happen organically and you can sense those moments when they're organically and I, and you can kind of decide when it, when is the right time to do something or not do something. And in fact, I'm like you in the same way that, and that's why I have, there's the duality of regret because in most circumstances, when I'm meeting people all the time that I admire, I end up kind of meeting them organically. And a lot of the times I respect their space and privacy. And I don't maybe ask the questions I really want to ask and all that kind of stuff. You kind of just, if it presents itself, if they start talking to you or you're in a situation, 
then let it happen, but you don't push it to your point. And so what happens, I think a lot of times for me is like, I have those moments where, you know, I meet this person. I remember I met um, the actor who played rookie of the year. I did a story about that and I just never really told him, uh, and it, but that's, it didn't present itself. It wasn't the right time. Right. So I think that's where the excitement and the drama is inside of your head where, because there's the world that we live in and the world that we try to operate in. And then there's the world in which we could wish we could live in in all these different ways, right? Where you're like, I wish it could have went like this, but that's not life, you know? And right. you gotta appreciate the way it un unfolds naturally. So, yeah. I would be remiss if I uh, didn't talk to you about your teams and where you're at. And there's two pressing questions. One for, for the baseball side of Cleveland and the other for the basketball side of Cleveland. Because our teams played in the playoffs, even though they don't consider the play-in game a playoff game, I consider it's the playoffs. It a playoff game. It's, it's the playoffs. A, it's a playoff game. So we I, were texting. We were texting throughout the game. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about basketball first because that's been the, the essence of this conversation. How do you feel about your team? Because it, it is a young and exciting team and potentially a team like Memphis where, you know, next year you're on the rise and you're the talk of the town. It was kind of like that with Mobley for a little bit. But next year, I think, is you know, that next step for, for the Cavs. I love what the Cavs did this season. It was unexpected. We had so many, uh, several years of just, you know, being cellar dwellers because of, you know, the, even that, that's just the remnants of the departure of LeBron, you know, and, and every place that he leaves feels that uh, for the most part, I know that he dealt with that for a while. The Cavs did. Um, if he ever leaves the Lakers, the Lakers will um, not that they had a great season this season, but hmm. I, but I think that um, I think the Cavs were really impressive. I think Bickerstaff did a great job um, pulling the team together. Kevin Love had a breakout season. He seemed to get his mind right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and mean, meaning just what his role was, right. Not, not necessarily his, the mental health part of things, but just, and maybe that has to do with it, but he seemed a little lost for a couple of years with injury and kind of where he fit, but everything seemed to fall into place and Garland, you know, whether it was Sexton's injury, but Garland came in and just rose to start him and Mobley was spectacular. Honestly, man, I thought we, and we looked like a top four or five team in the East. And to me, it wasn't necessarily the youth that prevented us from, from moving forward. It was injuries. That was the key. I mean, you lose, I mean, Rubio was a part of that team. And even though he was kind of a role player, he still provided some guidance, some passing, mm -hmm. some floor as a floor general and him playing and giving him minutes off of Garland to let Garland rest. If you notice that when Rubio went out, then Garland's back started hurting because he was literally carrying the load. So I think, <laughs> I think it's one of those things where I actually think that we could have had a shot to beat Brooklyn. Not that, you know, the talent levels there without a doubt for Brooklyn, but like just the inconsistencies and what happened with Kyrie in the season and the vaccination stuff and Durant yeah. kind of Durant's always a force, but you know, honestly, man, I, I, I have, we can have another show about him. Like he's an interesting player, but I just think the first, they just, they had a hard time really getting a cohesiveness Brooklyn that is yeah. uh, throughout the year. So I thought we had a chance. Did I want to play Brooklyn? Absolutely freaking not. And I was like, for the love of God, are you serious? We lost those last couple of games. And it was like, please don't freaking play Brooklyn. And we did. Uh, and they won, uh, but look, we were injured. We had some injuries and or at least people starting to come back. Um, and listen, man, Jared Allen finally came back, but his injury was crucial because yeah. he was such a, a dominant force in the paint as far as it defensively 
athlete. He was a shot blocker. He was just a tall tower that was preventing folks altering shots and him and Mobley together. And I think he was playing hurt, you know, and he was not, he was rusty. So that loss of him was a huge deal. But to your point next season, man, it's going to be awesome. If we can keep our health, if we can make some signings and if we can bring in a couple of veterans to shore up the depth on our roster, I, I think you could see the Cavs make it somewhat of a deep playoff run next year. I don't think championship yet. Cause clearly I think that takes a long time, Yes, I but I think either. we could be competitive, man. I think we could be in the same ilk as Memphis next year. Last question here uh, is how do you feel about the guardians and how do people in Cleveland feel about not only the name change, but just the team in general, because I know you were a fan of it, the, the, the name change to, to what it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, I was, I was open to it. I, I didn't have, I didn't care too much. There's a lot of people who really care about team names. And I, I, this is just my opinion. I, as long as they're in the same city, it's just kind of like a rebranding to me. It's not like you're like the Alaska guardians. It's not like right. they left like Cleveland when they, when, the, when Art Modell took the team and stole the, took the team to Baltimore right. and we're all crying in our beers. It, it's one of those things where it was a shift. You know, did I, I didn't overly hate it. Were the Indians thing. I didn't really, you know, but I understand the move and I get right. it and, and I get it. So I don't own the team. You know, I don't, I don't invest in the team. Uh, you know, maybe I pay some, for the chief seats and stuff like that, but I'm not invested financially in the, the Cleveland baseball team. So, so if they change the name and they think it's the right thing to do, and it seems to be at least taking into consideration the perspective of other folks. Okay, cool, man. Like whatever. And a lot of people got really pissed. So it's 50, 50 split. There's a lot of people who'd hate the name change and feel like their team was stolen. It's like, no, actually, no, it's, it's still here. It's just a different name. Um, guardians are okay. I actually would have liked if they went to the Cleveland spiders. Um, and, uh, cause I like that old school team, uh, the history behind that. And, and I the hats are cool and the logo and it would just spiders, freaking spiders. Right. So I would have loved the spiders, but guardians are cool. We got the guardians over the bridge. If you ever come through these giant Gothic, like Gotham city guardians, mm -hmm. as you go over the bridge to the West side of town. Um, no, but the, I, I think the name change is cool. I, I, how do I feel? I'm surprised by how we, um, are performing so far this year. You know, Francona always surprises me. He shouldn't, he carries a team. He knows how to jump. And we have some young players that are great. I don't know if we're going to push into the playoffs, but Jose is incredible. Um, Quan has been playing, you know, incredibly yes. well. Uh, we got that speedster. I forget his name. Who's our leadoff hitter from Houston. I know he hasn't been a huge like producer, but he's got, he's dangerous. Miles, Straw. Miles, Miles Straw. Straw. Yeah. My man, my man can play a center field. So I'm surprised. And I think we could make a playoff push this year. Can I say Go one ahead. more thing about the guardians? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I just, you know, I was just saying how I'm optimistic about this year going through the roster with the, with the uh, guardians. And I am, I think under Francona's leadership, there's always, you always have a chance. And especially with like the payroll of the guardians always had been a disaster for the last like 10 or 15 years. Um, they've had a couple of years where they've opened up the, the, the checkbook, but like, for the most part, they're really just operating a tight ship. And I think they do a really good job with their farm system and, you know, comparative to what they're spending, they just don't have the capital to, to kind of buy a team and put it together. Right. So I commend the operations and the general manager and everybody in the last 10 to 15 years, but like, gosh, can man, can Francona just bring some of that Boston magic? I know that they have more talent. I know they had more talent, but for the love of God, he brought us to game seven against the Cubs and a game we should have won that we should have won that series, bro. We were up three to one. 
uh-huh. against the, the for- Joe three to the, one. The forgotten three to one. Uh, the the funny thing is, is it's a, it's the universe. It's the penance. It's yes. it's the it's the payback for the Cavs coming back three to one against the Warriors, and the the gods were like, "Hey, Cleveland, that's great. We got to offset this, man. That's just too much happiness for you. We're gonna offset well, it by this." I don't. T- I think it's the you know the balance of curse breaking, like the Cavs broke the the Cleveland championship curse, and the Cubs not winning for 108 years. Cleveland was just the team that got in the way of that, and it it is it, that's it, a great point. It's weird that you know it happened that way because. And I didn't live in the city, and maybe we can wrap up on this. The because you you and I have talked about just the the excitement and the jubilation after the Cavs came back and beat the Warriors, and just that moment when the buzzer sounds in Cleveland, and what that was like. Greatest ever. So it's just it's weird that you know you had the opportunity and you know lebron beating his chest with the raji davis home run and and lebron you know being a bandwagon you know there's a lot of lebron bandwagon fans for whatever team he goes on lebron's a bandwagon fan for whatever you know baseball team is you know young and relevant quintessential whoever's winning he's like yeah (laughs) i've been a fan forever It, it makes no sense but like that whole thing and then the rain delay i think that's when you know every everybody in cleveland just has the oh no moment where it's oh "Oh, no this is done we're over over Over. momentum gone that you mentioned that rajay davis home run uh was one of the greatest moments i've never heard a stadium pop like that i mean maybe i have but it's got to be the top 10 moments that i've ever experienced and i didn't see that one live i was actually out i was in a parking lot listening to it because i was into it in between tv screens and i started screaming and running alone in a walmart parking lot uh <laughs> outside of my car just screaming yes and then you get back in the car and i you know i'm listening to our play-by-play guy tom hamilton one of the greatest in the business on the radio on the cleveland indians radio network and um you know i'm listening to him you know kind of walk us through then all of a sudden it's like okay there's a rain delay and you know then you're right that rain delay happens and you're and everyone in cleveland's thinking oh no because you know it's a momentum killer and baseball you, it, that momentum shifts if you give that pitcher an opportunity to collect him himself it's just something shifted there man something shifted and i think we just the fans in the stadium and in the region around the country just kind of knew in that moment it was going to be over um should have won the series um we didn't was happy for the cubs for their curse breaking but listen indians or excuse me the garden guardians haven't won since 1954 yeah was the last word and we've been so close too so we kind of mirror the cubs in that way i know they went to several um you know they got so close game sevens on their way to the world series but we've been in the world series yeah like game sevens in the world series against the florida marlins what a disaster choke that up games against the atlanta braves choke that against uh uh just you know the chicago cubs up three one i love francona and my point is i'm just i, I don't think this is the team that's going to go all the way but it's just like of all the time francona's got his two and his 
his World Series rings, especially the first one, was incredible. I think they came back three to one. Um, they, that was, um, yeah. And we're I, down three I, or three one or whatever. They yeah. were down three. They were down. Uh, I think they were down. It's was it three zero? I, I think it was three zero. Yeah, it was, and that is speak talk about you know. And I've talked about this on my on my show plenty. That is probably my darkest moment as a sports fan, and I was seven, and like it was, it crushed me. Like, and I'm still there. There are moments where you know I think back to that, and I'm still not over it. I'm still not over. It lives it. inside of you. I know it never goes away. No, and, but, but Joe, here's the thing. What's crazy is I can imagine that because I've been through that scenario many times with Cleveland. I know that feeling, and you know that's a dark moment. That's a dark, dark mm-hmm. moment. And here's the thing, though. This with the thing with Francona. I, another series that people forget about, and I don't know the exact year, I, maybe it's 2007. Look, the, another three to one comeback was the Indians were up three to one against Boston. Yeah. To go to the World Series to beat the Rockies, and a Terry Francona led Red Sox team comes back on the Indians. Yeah. Wins four or three <laughs> straight or whatever, and then goes and beats the very defeatable. Uh, Colorado Rockies. They got on a run, but they really shouldn't have been in the World Series. And so that was Cleveland's chance too. Francona does it to us. Then he comes to us and drops a three to one series. So of all the times Francona is coming back three to one with his teams, somehow magically he comes to Cleveland and he goes up three to one and blows it. And it's just like, we're well, right. We just got in the way our franchise just got in the way. So I'm, I still, I know it sounds crazy, but I always have world series aspirations for the Cleveland baseball team, just because of how close we got. And just because we've always surprised people with how well we've run the team. I say we, but the, the, the management operations have run the team. So look, guardians could do something special this year. If they can, you know, get hot and rely on their pitching and just get on base. But again, I, you know, even with, with Frank Hoda as a great manager, I think there's just too many other talented teams out there. So I don't win, I don't know when the next window is for the, for the guardians, Joe, I, I don't know when that's going to be five years, 10 years. I don't know, but it might I might be now that division's wide open. Everybody saw Chicago, the white Sox were going to, you know, it was an open and shut case and they were just going to run away with the division like they did last year. That's not the case this year. Right. Cleveland might have a chance and I, I don't mean to rub salt in your wounds, but they were also up to nothing in the ALDS against the Yankees and the, yeah. the, that, that magical year that was that. So maybe the moral of the story is here that Francona needs to be behind. He, he, he's like doc there rivers uh, of baseball where he, if he's up in a series, it's, Oh no, here we go again. How are you going to screw this up? But if you're behind <laughs> it's, there's nobody I'd rather have in this situation. Let's rally the troops and let's win this damn thing. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yep. I think that's the case. And I don't know how many years he's going to continue to coach uh, or manage, excuse me, the, uh, the guardians, but um, you know, he's a, he's so fantastic, but he's working with what he's got to work with. He's squeezing the juice from that lemon. And mm-hmm. we always have a great pitching staff, but we just, I mean, Fran Miller is like, he's good. I thought he was going to be a big time power hitter. He's been, eh, he's okay. Um, you know, he's giving you 250, 260, 240, but he's, he's bopping 25, 30. 
yeah, it's good. But you need, you know, in baseball, as you know, with the pitching out there, you got to have, you know, you got to have offensive firepower. You know that as a fan of the Bronx Bombers, like Mm -hmm. you got to have people that when someone leaves something in the zone or a pitcher doesn't pitch the way he's supposed to pitch, you got to have people to take advantage of that. But I think, you know, we have a pretty decent batting average. I think last time I checked, the Guardians have one of the highest batting averages in the in the E or the American League, I believe. I could be wrong. Yeah, Um, that that that's because of, you know, the guys at the top of your straw you mentioned before before and Stephen Kwan who's just like he's a wizard I, I don't know he's what fire. He does. he's got magical powers in his bat like he <laughs> I love him I, he's great I just hope you know I hope we sustain that and develop as a team you never know uh, the Guardians are a team that could get hot they're yeah. like one of those teams that kind of are like they hang around they hang around but if they get it together and especially in the postseason when you have again pitching like we have um you know it's you know it's unbelievable I think we have every opportunity in the world but um, baseball is just a t- baseball is a weird sport, man. We could do a whole nother podcast about this. It's so long. The season's so long. There's so many ups and downs and you just never know who's going to come out on top. You know, you, you could have a team that's hot for 80% of the year and then, you know, injuries or they lose it. And then you got a team that kind of hangs around until the last month of the season. And then boom, puts a 10 to 15 game winning streak together. Next thing, you know, you know, they're in the, they're in the playoffs. And they're hosting the world. I mean, it happened two out of the past three years with with Washington and, and, and with Atlanta last year. Both yep. teams were horrendous, horrendous around this time. And the, the Braves didn't get over 500 until August 13th last year. Right. Over 500. And they won the World Series. So, yeah, it, it's. that's why I think it's the best sport is because it's a marathon. It's a daily soap opera for, for six months. And then October comes around and it's like any other playoff situation where it's a sprint to the finish, but you got to promise me that we do another podcast when you can, it doesn't matter sometime this year, I'd love to have a conversation where we, we, uh, we have a talk about one singular topic and dive deep. And that is why you think baseball is the greatest sport and why I think it is not the greatest sport. Okay. And, and, and again, this will be a friendly thing, but I want to present some points as to and the length of the season. And there's some other things about, again, it's in my top three, it's my third favorite sport, but yeah. why do I think football and basketball, as far as watching it and then, you know, through a season and into the playoffs, why I love that experience more than the totality of a baseball season. Now, baseball postseason, it's up there. I don't know if there's anything better. Like uh, every pitch matters, right? He's close. I was talking about this with my girlfriend last night because I was watching the Ranger game and I'll get into the Ranger game in the, in the next portion of this podcast. But um, I was watching the Ranger game and there's nothing like, you know, third period of a, of a hockey game and your team's winning and you're just like, can we put the clock on two right. times speed, please? Some people right. listen to this podcast on, on two, two times speed. Can we speed the clock up? And, you know, and especially overtime, I, I think, you know, this, this Rangers postseason already has knocked off two and a half years of my life because of how much overtime hockey I've watched. Right. But no playoff baseball. It's, it's every, it's the best and the worst because every pitch matters. Your heart breaks a little bit on every single freaking pitch every 15 seconds. You're just like, Oh my God, this could be it. Our season could be over. And it's just, it's like you're running. It's like you're running across country. That's that's the the only thing I can and you're doing it on a dead sprint the entire time. You, you, 
I didn't. I don't play in playoff games for baseball, but I feel exhausted, mentally and physically exhausted after watching a lot. just a single playoff game. But yeah, we will. I'll definitely sometime over the summer. I will have you have you on, and we will dive. Maybe we'll, we'll take an entire hour, and we'll just dive really, really deep into it. But cool. on that note, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, I talked about your show at the beginning. Uh, tell people what you got going on, where they can find you, all that good stuff. All right, Aaron? Yeah, if you love storytelling, just uh, just look up on Google. Just look up 7-Minute Stories. That's Just use the number 7-Minute Stories, and then you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, you can find it at the website, 7minutestories.com. Um, and if you like storytelling and if you have, you know, not a ton of time, but if you're in between spaces or you have seven minutes to, to want to engage in something interesting and to kind of, uh, be in a space where it, it's kind of like a roller coaster ride, Joe, you listen to them. It's, it's hard to explain what it is, mm-hmm. but it's just, you know, these little short form nuggets where you can kind of walk in my shoes for a little bit and we can kind of take a journey together. And uh, it's, it's a perspective. It's, it's, it's truly a story. It's not an agenda. It's not talking about this, you know, you know, right or wrong. It's not dictating. It's I think true storytelling where it's just about looking at the world through a perspective and finding connection with an audience for that. So I've been really grateful. We got a lot of people who listen um, and uh, it's, it's been awesome. And who would have thought with just a small, you know, short, a podcast like that, that it could do that. So um, if you're into that, if you're into, if you're not into storytelling, it's probably not for you, but if you're interested in that kind of thing, and uh, I think it's worth checking out. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a blast when, when you, when you're on and I will talk to you soon. All right, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. Enjoy Chicago. Thank you. All right. SeaGeek is the number one ticket app for buying and selling tickets. Sports fans, music fans, comedy fans, theater fans, fans of tickets. Use my code GRINDHOUR to get into the building to get yourself a seat. Again, that's code GRINDHOUR at checkout for $20 off your first purchase at SeatGeek.com or the SeatGeek app. One more time, code GRINDHOUR. That's G-R-I-N-D-H-O-U-R at checkout. I know the uh, the A block went a little long with Aaron there, but uh, it was a good conversation. I didn't want to cut it. But getting into the next part of the show, I mentioned at the very tail end that I was going to talk about the Ranger game that I watched last night, and I am. And it's a funny thing to me. I mentioned this with my dad. We were watching it in the hotel room here, and I said Pittsburgh seemed to outplay the Rangers in the first series, and the Rangers ended up winning that series. But every single moment, it seemed like Pittsburgh was the better team. And the Rangers just got lucky. The Rangers, for two periods, outplayed Carolina last night. I mean, they were flying around defensively. They were just that much better. Shesterkin was a stone wall in goal. And time of possession, the Rangers were dominating. They had the puck, it seemed like, for 80% of the game. And they didn't end up winning. Uh, one, you know, the, the overtime goal by Cole for Carolina was kind of like this freak goal. He just turned around and chucked it at the net. And it, it hit, I think, Lindgren's stick and redirected past Shesterkin. And that's, you know, how we lose. It's a, it's a tough way to lose. But that was my first reaction was, 
you know, the Rangers played arguably their best game of hockey in the playoffs thus far, and they lose the game. It's very, very confusing to me with this team because I'm all in. I am all in on this Rangers squad. But when we don't really play well, we seem to win. And when we do, we lose. So I, 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 it's a weird thing. And, you know, Carolina with the tickets thing and, 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 you know, restricting it to only a certain number of area codes, fine and well, you know, they have home, home ice advantage for a reason. But, you know, so are the Rangers. Wait till Carolina comes to, to New York. It's going to be a different animal. And best believe Ranger fans are going to let Carolina hear it for for not allowing uh, some of the fans to, to travel down to Raleigh and be in the building. But it's just, yeah, that part is weird. The other two things that I, that I have uh, as a takeaway is Capo Caco. He's been playing really, really good hockey recently, and he's just going to have a game where he's going to win it by himself. Whether that be, you know, he, he scores a couple of goals, or assist on a couple of goals, he's just going to take over. And I, I hope it happens in game two, but we he's going to carry us for a game. I, I just I know we're going to have a Capo Capo game sometime in this playoffs. Again, I hope it's sooner rather than later, but it is coming. Best believe it is coming. He's been ridiculously good. And, and same with... Uh, with Miller, I know he had a he had a moment at the end of uh, Game Seven against the Penguins, but he's gonna uh, contribute to a win in, in a very very massive way sometime soon as well. And the last thing on the Rangers before I get to the Yankees is um, Kreider needs to to show up for Game Two. It, it the, he's back into like pre twenty twenty two where he just kind of disappears for moments in the game and you forget he's on the ice or even forget he's on the team he needs to show up he was you know offensively our leader uh in in a lot of ways and he needs to to show up and and put the team on his back and carry us for a little bit because i think that's where this team lacks in, in with the youth is they don't really know how to carry themselves yet through through a playoff game even though they won a playoff series they, they don't really know what it's like yet to, uh, to win a playoff series and, or to, to go far and to, you know, the ebbs and flows of a playoff game. The, you know, the kid line can only take us so far. So we need, we need that veteran leadership from Kreider to re- really rear its head in, in game two and maybe steal game two. You know, they, they say that in a playoff series doesn't start until the road team wins. Well, the road team was winning for a considerable amount of time in the game, and uh, and they lost. One more tiny note, I'm very happy with, you know, the minimal amount of penalties. I think there were two penalties the entire game, and they both happened at the very beginning of the first period. So... I like that the refs are letting them play. I like that um, that you know it's clean hockey. Also, and I, seriously, last last note, I just thought of this. I, I should have realized how how the game was going to go based off of how many you know iron unkinds that the the Panthers had or the, the Hurricanes had last night. 
it, it seemed like Carolina hit the post 84 times. I mean, or or the crossbar. I mean, it, the, the ringing of that was just permeating through the through the arena. That's what was keeping you know Carolina at at bay, not, as well as the Rangers' play. But I mean, they they every shot. There was one shot. Um, forget who it was in the third period where both it was before the, the game tire but it, both my dad and I was like oh that went in and it, it really looked like he just ripped it through the net and it bounced back out but it hit the post both both my dad and I were like oh great there's the tire but um it hit the, I forget who it was but um yes yeah, so that's the Rangers the major no is Kreider really needs to step up he needs to be the veteran leadership that that this team needs for game two because again we outplayed Carolina and you know we just need a little bit more time to, to actually seal off a game and 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 win one and steal one because you know this team is good enough it is good enough to 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 make it to the eastern finals that it really is this is a really really good ranger team and I, I think a lot of people had playoff aspirations, but they weren't expecting this team to be this good this fast. So getting to, to the Bronx Bombers, to the Yankees, um, main thing here, slow down. I know John and I on Tuesday's show did a thing where we did the optimism eater and we were blowing smoke up the Yankees' rear ends, but we're, we just we have the opportunity to, to sweep. Uh, the game's actually going to be going on when the show goes up. But we have an opportunity to sweep Baltimore again. But it's Baltimore. You know, the teams that we're beaten up on, I know you, you play the teams on your schedule, and you can only do that, and you can only win those games. And we are. And we've won, won nine series in a row. But we need to slow the roll on this Yankees team because we haven't played Tampa Bay yet. Tampa Bay, as much as you want to say that Toronto is the team to beat in the East, they're not. They're not the, the team that won the, the division two years running. They're not the team that two years ago was in the World Series. They're not. The Rays are the team to beat still in the AL East, and we haven't played them yet. It's May 19th. We haven't played them yet. And we are. We're going to actually play them at the end of May here. But we haven't played Tampa yet, so we really don't know how good we are. Yes, we've played some pretty good teams. Toronto is a pretty good team. Um, Chicago is going to be a pretty good team. So, you know, Detroit, when we played them, they were still th thought of as, as a pretty good team. So, you know, we have some battle testing, but we still really haven't played anybody of substance and, like, we're playing the Angels here soon. They're the best team out West. They're a really, really... I, I, I just talked about them as the, as the most entertaining team in the league. So, not playing anybody scares me in the fact that we really don't know how well we stack up yet. And Tampa Bay is a litmus test. If, if, if we stand toe-to-toe, -to -toe, even if we lose a series, but, you know, the games are competitive, they're close... We're, we're still competing on a high level, I, I'll feel a lot better about where this team stands. And 
Mark your calendar, Yankee fans, because this stretch that I'm about to talk about, it's a 12-day stretch in the middle of June. This is where we're really going to know how good this team is. From June 14th to June 26th, I'm going to read off the series. Three at home against Tampa Bay. Four on the road in Toronto. Three in Tampa Bay. And then four at home against Houston. In that stretch, that 12-day stretch, there are no, or actually, it's a, it's a two-week stretch. Uh, it's 14 games. Um, there are no off days. None. Zero. Zilch. That's when this team could potentially go on a little bit of a, a dry spell and a lull just because playing that level of competition with no off days for that long, it's going to be tough. And if we come out of that even close to 500, that's when I'm going to be, okay, the, the, this Yankee team is, is serious and we're that good. And that's two and a half months into the season. You know, Nick and I just wrote off the Red Sox on yesterday's show. Um, this is when you kind of start to begin to cross teams off, but it's a marathon of a season. It, it's Again, it's a daily soap opera. It, things change on a day-to-day basis. I don't want to crown this team the team to beat in the American League or the team to beat in the East because we're not yet. We haven't proven ourselves yet. Yes, this team is ridiculously talented and, and, and ridiculously good and can go off on you know a two-week stretch where they look like unbeatables. But we've seen that from this, not this same group of guys, but a lot of the guys that have been on the, uh, on the team for the past couple of years. When we hit home runs and... We look like the most unbeatable team in the world. But when we don't, that's when we struggle. And this team has been hitting home runs. Judge has the American League lead. Stanton, the beginning and the end of the uh, beginning and, and recently, has caught fire. Rizzo was on fire at the beginning. He had the American League lead in home runs through the first two weeks. So we're hitting home runs. Trevino just hit a home run the other day. We're hitting home runs. So I want to see what this team looks like when we stack up against really good competition and when we're not hitting home runs and we have to push the envelope. We have to push the issue. We have to take the extra base. We have to steal bags. We have to, put, we have to do hit and runs. The small things that I talked about with John where you have to do those. You have to be a baseball team, not just cavemen. And I'm not saying this team is that caveman mentality. I, I do think they are a cohesive baseball team that can win in all sorts of ways. But until, again, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record and beat this horse. We need to play better competition. Again, we can only play the, the, the teams on our schedule, but we need to be better uh, we need to be better. I, I, I don't think that this team right now, yes, they're a playoff team, and that's what Brian Cashman and, and the Yankee Brain Trust has always been preaching to us is we're always going to be a playoff team. But last time I checked, that's not good enough. That, that hasn't been good enough recently. So, yes, the goal is to you know, get to the playoffs, but that's just the start of the season for, for Yankee fans and for, and for what... The Yankee, that, that's what should be the Yankees' mindset. And, and 
I think, you know, Judge, after his, you know, in his post-game interview after the game the other night, he said it's only May, and he's right. That, that, but that's the mindset. You know, continue to be aggressive, continue to be, to win on a daily basis and compete, but recognize it's only May. And I, I it's not, <laughs> it's like me to, to, to be like this, to, to be cautionary. Can we, but I, I really need Yankee fans to listen because it's getting out of hand because we're, we're, we're building up confidence and building up this bravado. We haven't played a really, really good team yet. Yes, to run, we, we're, we're beating the teams that we have to beat and we're collecting the record in division that we should have to want to win a division. And I, that, that is... If I'm looking at, you know, my my legal pad and making a list of things that I want to check off during the season, winning the division is the first check mark on that list. And beating up on Toronto, beating up, pulverizing Baltimore, having a winning record against Tampa Bay and Boston, that's going to win you the division. I need, like... So, winning the division and getting at least, I mean, our, the next one is ha- having the, the best record in baseball so we, we can have home field for the entire postseason. That, I think, is also important. And I, I, would, love to, for, I would love to ask them myself, but I would love to have somebody in the room ask for the, for the public, is having the best record serious? Is that a goal? And because I think that's what this team needs. That's been the downfall a lot is um, is having too many road games in the playoffs. Home field is important because unlike a lot of Major League Baseball parks, Yankee home field is actually significant. People don't want to play in the Bronx in the postseason. There's a reason why why they don't want to it, it, it's a madhouse it's it, it, it turns into the Bronx Zoo in, in October so winning the division having the best record yes what they're doing right now will check those boxes off but just slow your roll man we we we're getting to the the tough part and maybe you know that that two-week stretch in the middle of June from the 14th to the, to the 26th is the toughest part of the schedule. Yeah, we might have, you know, a long, grueling West Coast road trip sometime there, but th- this, that, that, this is, that's the cream of the crop, is, is that two-week stretch. And I can't wait for it because it's going to be entertaining as hell, but that's when we'll know really, truly, whether this team is up to snuff or they've just been beating up on bad teams. And, you know... We we see what that what that does with uh with Chicago with the White Sox last year. So uh, take a quick break. On the way back, I'm gonna uh, talk about a segment and do a segment uh, <laughs> that I uh, talked about recently to bringing back. So back after this. Terrible tease, but back after this. We're gonna end the show quickly on uh. On a segment that I talked about, I think it was Monday, about uh, the most entertaining at-bats 
in baseball right now. And I'm bringing it back. So if you're new to the show, this was a brief segment last year that I did. But I've seen every team play. And in reverse order, from 5-1, to one, I'm going to go through the most entertaining at-bat. And what I mean by that is whatever you're doing, I'm stop or whatever I'm doing, I'm stopping to watch these five guys right now. No matter what. I don't care where I am, what I'm doing, I'm stopping to watch these five guys. And at five is a Houston rookie shortstop Jeremy Pena. I picked him up with my fantasy team. He's the rookie leader in home runs. He puts entertaining at bats together. They're good. They they are not um they're not rookie at bats. They they are seasoned at bats. And maybe that this is why they were okay with with letting Correa go is nobody knew about this kid except for maybe the people in the Houston organization but around baseball I don't think a lot of people knew about who this Jeremy Pena guy was so he's at five at four and my girlfriend will be happy about this is Brandon Nimmo he so far in the season has been the catalyst for every Met comeback or everything that's good to happen with the Mets. Nimmo has been right at the center of it. So I hope it continues because he's a type of guy that when he's healthy, he's extremely fun to watch on both sides of the ball and can be what the Mets have been consistently missing is that type of leadoff presence and I would love to see what their record is I, I got to do some research on this but with him in the lineup recently in the past three years and him out of the lineup because I, I would bet that it's um, it's significant three and my girlfriend's gonna hate me for this is Bryce Harper he wasn't on my radar for this list uh, up until last weekend when he almost single-handedly destroyed the the LA Dodgers in LA he is yes very polarizing and but he he and I know he's hurt right now because of the the shoulder thing and getting a shot like a he got some sort of shot uh and he, he hasn't been able to play the past three days but he has been ridiculously entertaining and He's having the encore season to an MVP year that you would want, that we didn't get his contract year with the Nationals. The year before, I mean, it was his best season as a major leaguer. So to have him back in that conversation as maybe the best player in baseball is where I think he wants to be, and, and it's good for the game because no matter how you feel about him, you're going to stop and watch him for his at-bat four times in a game. I think he's, you know, the new A-Rod, where it's, he's, the, he's baseball's villain. Two is Nick's favorite player and a guy that no Red Sox fan wants to see leave town, Xander Bogarts. He's the American League batting leader, and he's a Yankee killer, and he's playing like an AL MVP. I know the Red Sox are where they are, and they're, they're cellar dwellers, but... Bogarts is single-handedly playing like an MVP so far in this season. And even though I hate the Red Sox, I have to see what he's doing because he's going to be in the conversation when it comes down to it 
uh, in, in July and August and maybe even in, in September if he gets traded. So I have to continue just because it's Bogart. It's a hate watch. It's it, but it, I have to respect the game and, and put him on a list at two. And, and number one, I talked about Harper playing, playing on an MVP candidate, maybe the best player in the game. I would give this guy the best player in the game offensively right now. And that's Manny Machado. He is t- shouldered the load with, with Tatis's absence and with everybody in that lineup seemingly underperforming. He has brought them to a place where they're second in the, in the NL West and they're remaining competitive solely because Machado is willing them to that spot. That's not sustainable over the course of a season, but right now he is single-handedly the most entertaining at bat and when he swings the bat it's the best swing in the game uh sorry Cano but he Manchado's got the best swing in the game so that's how we're going to end the podcast just to go back through the list of most entertaining at bats right now as of May 19th five Jeremy Pena for Houston four Mets outfielder Brandon Nimmo three reigning NL MVP Bryce Harper two the American League batting leader as of today, Xander Bogarts, and number one, Manny Machado of the San Diego Padres. I will do this list probably once a month throughout the season, so you can have that. Uh, but that's the end of the show. At this point, if you're still listening, please like, subscribe, share this podcast to anybody who you seem fit. Download the show. It means more to the show than you know. Huge thanks for Aaron for coming on today's show. Huge thanks for SeaKeek for sponsoring today's episode. Please use the code. It's free money, people. Don't be ridiculous. Use the code. Um, And closing time. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. But until then, again, it's closing time. You don't have to go home. But you can't stay here. Peace.